we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who were reproached, who reproached you, fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. In verse 1 it says, We who are strong, who are the strong? We learned that in chapter 14, didn't we? The strong are those who uh, typically are going to be Gentile believers because they don't have the Jewish background, the law background, and therefore when meat is sacrificed to idols and they're wondering if it's okay to eat, they don't have a problem eating because they're the strong. Not just the strong because they know God's word better, but they're the strong simply because they're the ones who understand this particular truth better. And the truth is, if we look at all of us and think about weakness and strength, we all have certain things where we're strong and certain areas where we're weak. Um, it, it happens for all churches and all Christians everywhere. But in particular, in chapter 14, as it talks about the strong, it's talking about these Christians who understand God's truth clearly when it comes to something like meat sacrifice to idols, and they realize it's okay to eat because there's no magical power in the idols there you're not going to get like unclean you're not going to be dirty because you've eaten something sacrificed to an idol you you realize that god has overcome all and therefore all is okay for you to take just give thanks to the lord and it's his right and so there's there's strength there there are those who are strong and then there are those who are weak who have this understanding of a meat the sacrifice to an idol, they have, okay, you know, there's a certain thing that makes it clean or unclean, and now this is unclean, even though we know all things are fulfilled in Christ and the law is fulfilled in Christ. There were some who were struggling to understand or who had not yet been taught, maybe, or whatever it was, they do not get it, that it is okay. And so they are the weak. And I don't think of weakness as, oh, you're, you're weak and you're, ugh, you're, I'm so glad I'm not like that person because they're weak. Look how strong I am. Once you do that, now you're weak in a whole other way, right? Through pride and, and arrogance and, and, and through the problem of, of destroying a brother or sister in Christ by doing something that's going to help lead them away from the faith rather than into growing strong. 
And so Paul, as he's written this letter about the gospel and brought that gospel to bear, not just as, uh, as an understanding of the gospel, understanding of theology, understanding of what's happened for all people everywhere in sin, and then now Christ has come in order to bring salvation to the whole world. Now Paul is saying, here's now how you live if you are a Christian. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, these words are not for you, but through these words, we hope what you'll hear is the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ, that he came, was born into the world of a virgin, that he lived his life, that he was one day baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he went out into the world teaching and healing. And for three years he did that. He lived perfectly under God's rule. He never broke God's law. He never sinned as all of us have done. He's the only person who has never done that because he has come as God's son, God in the flesh. Then he is taken to the cross. He's crucified. He's crucified both because of what the people have done by rejecting him as the Messiah, but also because it was in God's plan that he would die in order to take the sins of the world upon himself so that we who would put our faith in Christ would have our sins forgiven. And then he's in the grave, buried, he's for three days there, and then he's risen again from the dead. This is the good news that he has now risen. He has now gone to the right hand of God. He now rules and reigns as the king. And instead of coming and just wiping everybody out who's a sinner, he's being patient letting time go by so that he has sent his spirit into the world and into people like you and me so that we will infiltrate all of society, all societies everywhere, and we will begin to tell people about this good news. You're a sinner. You need a savior. And now you might just say that to someone and they'll be like, what do you mean I'm a sinner? Or, or they may have different kind of language. They may hear that in a certain way. I've talked to pastors from different places around the world, and if you say sinner in different cultures, they're going to have different ideas of what that means. I had one pastor in Australia said, if you, if you call someone a sinner, everybody automatically assumes you mean sexual sin. Some type of, you know, premarital whatever. That's what a sinner is. If you're doing sin in some other area of life, then they would use other words. And so when they often proclaim the gospel, they will use the word sin, but one of the words they'll focus on is rebellion. Because rebellion is what sinners do. It is the action of sin in the world is that we have God trying to rule over us and we say, no, thank you. And we rebel against God and try to run life our own way without him. So we have this great gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done and the, the, that from creation, from creation, God makes everything good and makes people what? What, what are people? What does God say people are? Good? Very good. And then we sin. And we take the very goodness of what it means to be made in the image of God. We sin, and that means what we call the fall, where they've chosen to rebel against God. God says, here's the boundaries of what it means to live faithfully for me. And people said, but I want to do that because it will make me like God. And then they go and they do that thing. And now there's this rebellion in the world. And now we're all born into that rebellion. We're all born rebels. Just have a child and find out for yourself if you haven't done that yet. And you'll find out kids are born rebels. And then in that rebellion, God immediately makes a promise. The promise that one will come who's the seed of Eve, meaning an offspring through the family of Adam and Eve. One will come. Who will crush the head of Satan, the one who deceived the woman, who deceived the man, who, you know, 
It's like the woman who swallowed a fly, you know? Eventually, it just, she just explodes or whatever. Um, that's probably not how it goes, is it? I, I don't remember. That's been so long ago. I'm, I'm glad that's not a part of my quiet time reading, you know? There, there wasn't a lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. I guess she'll die. Like, why would she die because she swallowed a fly? Well, it's because it ends up being a horse, Mike, of course. <laughs> Come on. Let's go. Here, here, here we go. So, sins in the world. There's rebellion. People are now rebelling, but God makes this promise. The promise more fully comes to Abram, or we now call him Abraham. His name is changed by God. And the promise is that God will, be, will, will give a blessing to the world through the offspring of Abraham. A blessing to all the world, not just to a certain people, but through Abraham, he's going to create a people in order to bless the rest of the world. You, you get what I'm saying? He's, he, he's blessing a family, making a, a, a Abraham's family into a larger family. That their offspring to be a part of this family. We would call them the Jews or Israel. But now, then through that Israel, God is going to bless the entire world because through Israel, he's going to bring the seed of Eve, who is going to be the one who's going to crush the head of Satan. We would call him before he came, or they would call him Messiah or the promised one or the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 or the, the one who's going to be the offspring of David, who's going to be greater than David. And so the promise is there. And then in Jesus, the promise is fulfilled. So if you just go to somebody and say, you're a sinner, need a savior, or God has a wonderful plan for your life or something like that, you're just going to, you're going to throw them in the middle of something where maybe they don't get it. So this is why you have to ask questions and, and love people enough to know about them, know their story, ask them about their spiritual background, their church background, their whatever background. Ask them about, you know, what their parents taught them to believe or what they've decided to believe. Ask them about all these things so that as you hear these questions, you find out where they are and then you know where to point them to the story. And so Christ is the one who comes and saves. And then Paul writes to the Roman church and he says, I'm going to explain in some great detail what Christ has done. He takes that moment of the story and gives all these bits and pieces from, you know, our fall to redemption and, and then fills in a lot of space there with redemption and what that means for, um, for Christ and then for us and, and for the Roman church, of course. And then he's saying, now here's how to live as this Christian. This is what it means to be a faithful Christian. This is how you live as this new community in Christ. And so starting in chapter 12 through now 15 here, it's talking about what it means to be a loving people. Loving to the world, but loving to each other. How are we going to love the world if we don't love each other? And how will the world know that Christ loves them unless they see our love for one another? Isn't that how Jesus says the world's going to know? Is how we love each other? It's, it, it is a part of our apologetic, how, not apologize, but how we defend the faith is to show what God is doing through that faith. Not that we are now perfect or doing everything right, but that he's creating this alternative community, this city within a city in which now they have a whole different economy. They have a whole different relationship. They have a whole different understanding of the world. They have a whole different understanding of enemies. They don't gossip the way the world gossips. Now they love. Now they serve. They don't just get angry and frustrated. They don't flip the bird at people. But we now are living differently. We now look upon people who are acting in ways that are less than desirable with eyes of compassion. Because that's how Christ looked at us. How do we deserve to be treated if Christ is driving behind us? 
the way that we drive our lives of sin. And so we need to learn to live as Christ's people. And Paul, beginning in verse or in chapter 12, now that he's given this beautiful, expansive gospel, says, here's how you live and love together. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is chapter 14, right? It's really a summary of, of all of chapter 14. I'm not going to go back and rehash chapter 14. We went through it in a couple of weeks and, and, and there's a lot there. And I encourage you to go back and read through all of this again and, and process this. If this is new to you or difficult for you. But the strong, those who know better, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Which means the strong are to tolerate and support to long for the flourishing of the weak, that they would know what is best, but when they don't know what is best, that we would not please ourselves, but do what is necessary in order to not destroy them. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to ridicule the failings of the weak, not to cluck our tongues at the failings of the weak. Not to gossip about the failings of the weak. Not to say, well, they're the weak. I don't want them over at my house because they're going to end up whatever. We can't pop the cork out of the wine because of what they're going to do with it. Right? We can't have them over because if we have them over, we can't eat the kind of food we want to eat. Nobody invites me over to their house. Why? Because everybody loves soup. You guys get it, right? So... We who are strong have an obligation to... Be, if you don't know, I hate soup, okay? That's all you got to know. I had soup when I was in Tacoma a month ago. I did. I had soup. You guys? Clap, everybody. Hey. We who are strong have an obligation... I didn't like it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not... So this is, so this is what it means to do that. And not please ourselves. Uh-oh. Okay, it's one thing to say, bear with the failings of the weak. I can try to figure out how to do that while still pleasing myself. But then Paul shows the extent of what that means. To tolerate and, and to support the weak as the strong means that at least at times we are specifically making the effort to not please ourselves. Because in pleasing ourselves, we will be doing the thing that hurts the weak. So let each of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. This is just a carryover of 14. You should hear the same words we've been hearing in the last couple of weeks. You should hear that here. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Remember the, the mutual edification, the mutual upbuilding from, from last week's sermon. So that's, the pleasure is not for ourselves but please his neighbor for his good. Wherever you have an opportunity to, as the strong, you should be able to refrain from doing something that is pleasurable to you in order to please your neighbor, in order to build someone else up. If you haven't figured it out by now as a Christian, if you are a faithful Christian, there should be many things 
many times where you find yourself not doing what you want to do because there's somebody else that needs something done. It should just be the normal activity of the Christian. There are other people who need things. And so I need to give up something in order to go do that. It, it's not necessarily the whole meat sacrifice to idols idea, right? It's not, not, it's not a whole like worship thing necessarily. When you start taking it beyond that into all of life, you start to realize that this should be the normal part of life, that we're giving up things that please us in order to do the things that will please others, meaning that it's good for them. It doesn't just, I'm not talking about taking them to Six Flags, although that, you know, we like to go to Six Flags and the tickets will be $35 and we have six people in my family. So remember that for the summer. Um, but let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That should be the goal. Verse three, for Christ, for, see the word for? What do I always tell you? It's one of the most important words in the Bible. You should figure it out. We can just set it. For. For. Paul is making arguments. And the word for shows you where he's going in the argument. It's one of the most common words. A word like because is an important word. It's doing the same kind of thing. Uh, for the purpose of, in order that, all of those kinds of words. And is a series word. It shows that there's more things to come that are in, in series with what you've just heard. For is one of the most important things. It gives us the, the purpose or the reason here. For Christ, why do we please our neighbor for his good to build him up? For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me, here, Jesus. This is from Psalm 69, which is the Psalm of David. But one is coming, who is the son of David, who is, what I said before, greater than David, right? The Lord said to my Lord, I'm going to make them, what, a footstool for your feet. So we're patient. There's, a, there's, a, there's patience coming. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, who is David's Lord? David's talking about his own son. So the one who's an offspring of David, who would be lesser than David, David is speaking up as greater than David. I'm going to have an offspring who's greater than me, which is fundamentally backwards from how society works. My child is lesser than me. I want my children to obey me because that reflects well upon our family name. They're the, they're the lesser. Often one of the problems that people have um, in, in a sinful way where this goes astray is where kids are, are so, they feel so obligated to please their parents or a lot of times specifically their fathers for, for sons that they feel their, their, their life is locked into this mode of I, either I have to do what makes daddy happy or I have to always feel guilty that I'm not doing enough. And so we have to be careful of things like that. So the strong have an obligation to not please themselves, but to focus on the weak and on their failings, to bear their burdens so that you are pleasing your neighbor for their good, to build them up so that you're not destroying them, like in chapter 14 and verses 15 and 20. Okay, this is the destruction. But now we're not to destroy them, but build them up. For Christ did not please himself. We're to be like Christ. Christ did not please himself. He's the example, the perfect example. He's the one who the reproaches fell on him. 
If you go specifically to Isaiah 53 and read that through, I won't, I won't read that to you, but read it and see how the reproaches of all of us fell upon him. Did, did Jesus, did, did Christ deserve that? Did he, did he do something that showed that he deserved that? Did he deserve to bear our reproach? Did he deserve? Did he somehow do something in which God said, all right, I got to let you have it now because you've done this. Is that what happened to Jesus? No. He bore the reproach because it was God's way for us out of what we deserved, which is to bear our own reproach, to bear our own sin, to bear our own trespasses, to bear our own judgment. So Jesus is the supreme example of this. Verse 4. For, okay, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Scriptures were just brought up from Psalm 69, talking about David and talking about Christ and how that's fulfilled in Christ, who bore our reproach. And then here, it says, this is what the scriptures are for. What was written in the former days, so specifically it's going to be the Old Testament, but even at the time where Paul is writing Romans, he is writing scripture, and the, the writings of the apostles are already beginning to be recognized as scripture. So, but those aren't necessarily former days. That's why I'm saying Old Testament, I think, is where the focus is, which is why the quotes here all come from the Old Testament. Whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope, meaning beyond our current circumstances and what we currently deserve, beyond what we currently feel, beyond what we currently are going through, beyond the whole strong and weak scenario, beyond the strong going, well, I, you know, Jesus saved me so that I would have this freedom and I, I, I'm trying to have this freedom, but then this person comes around and I've got to give it up and not please myself and please them. That doesn't sound like any fun. Did, did Jesus come because he decided he was going to have a 33-year romp? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just live it up and die young. That was Jesus. It's like James Dean, right? Just live it up and die young and drive my car fast. That's, that's not what he did. He came bearing our reproach. He came not pleasing himself. He came because, and how, how can you do that? That's the question. How can you do that? A lot of you talk about your life in terms of how much time you have before you die. And you'll go, oh yeah, heaven shmevin, I get it. I, I say that, I believe in eternity, blah, blah, blah. But eternity seems like so far away and so far out there and so far whatever. You're not living for eternity, you're living for life. Some of you still look at your money and think it's about now. Some of you still look at your house or your kids or your parents or your friends, your job, and you're thinking about now. And so do I. What's wrong with us? The scriptures are not there in order to make you go, okay, well, bear down. You've only got a few years left. Let's, let's, let's make them count. What's your bucket list? You're going to jump out of a plane? What are you going to do? You know, let's start marking them. Let's, some of you need to take your bucket list and throw it in a bucket that ends up in the trash. 
that goes to the dump. Your bucket list should be not please myself. Is that how we do our bucket list? You know what a bucket list is? Look like I'm talking to a bunch of zombies. What's going on? Everybody get what I'm saying? Okay, good. Here we go. Here we go. The bucket list, this is what I'm going to do before I die kind of a thing. This is, this is your exercise for the week. Blank sheet of paper. Pray. Read this passage. Pray and go, God, i got to make a new bucket list. And it's going to be based on one word. Hope. Found in Christ. Based upon that salvation. Not pleasing myself. Hope in the, the life to come. Yes, that starts now. No, we don't just pass time until we get there. But we do something different now because of that day. You see how it works? What we're doing now is important, but not because our time is limited and we're going to get to pack it all in now and eventually one day we'll look at that extra time and go, oh, good, we got overtime. Now we can go and start actually doing the holy stuff. Now we can start doing the singing stuff. Now me and the angels, you know, we can kind of lock arms and we've got our Irish grog in our hand and we're singing, you know, heaven songs or whatever it's going to look like. (coughs) This says the strong, meaning the ones who are growing in maturity and the ones who are weak should be eventually getting to the strong point, right? We are here not to please ourselves, meaning this is just the normal Christian life. This is what it means to be a normal Christian who's growing in maturity. Is that you're not there to please yourselves because Jesus didn't please himself. He went and did what was painful and difficult. And listen, for Christ did not come please himself. Understatement of the year, right? Okay. I did not come to please myself. You know, it's like that would be an understatement. Christ did not come to please himself. But he, essentially what this is saying is, the Old Testament promise that he bore, that David talks about in Psalm 69, is Jesus goes and dies for you. Now, that's you. Because he's the example that's being used for how your life is now described. You no longer are pleasing yourselves, but you're doing things that are good for your neighbor, for his good, her good, to build them up. Because whatever was written in the former days, Old Testament specifically here, whatever was written is there for instruction, and that through endurance, endurance is not... A pleasure word, it's a pain word. You get that right? Endurance. How many of you go, oh, I endured. That was fun. I endured that thing. We, just, we don't use that word that way, right? Endured is what you say when the annoying relatives are around. Or when you leave your relative's house and they say, I endured you, right? But it's... For instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, the encouragement of the Why do you need encouragement? Who needs encouragement? Those who have everything going for them, right? Ah, ah, my life is great and everything's good and here we go. And oh, look, it's six in the morning. It's time to get up and you spring awake. Is that what you guys do in the morning, right? You spring out of bed and you're like, another day, let's go. And you're, you know, you jump into your clothes that you've already, you know, put out in like a formation so you could do them in a jumping jack and you put them on and then you run to the bathroom and you're brushing your teeth while you're drinking your coffee at the same time. And, you know, and it's like, who lives that way? But life is tough. It's difficult. We endure, and we need encouragement. But what is the encouragement for? 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope that doesn't look to now as now and only now, but looks to then, and once then makes sense, and once then is understood, it tells us what we do now. Once you have the endurance and encouragement that comes from the scriptures, that kind of instruction in which you are looking toward that hope in the future, that we really will be saved fully, everything, that we're going to have new bodies, that we're going to have new minds, that we're not going to have those temptations anymore, we're not going to have those struggles, we're not going to have those pains, every tear is wiped away, new heavens and new earth, there comes the new Jerusalem, it needs no sun because the light comes from Jesus himself. That's eternity. The pictures that we have are like rubies and jewels and streets of gold because we can't describe it. We have to describe it according to Gold Rush, right? Channel 120. Anybody watch Gold Rush? It's like you're digging the way down there so that you can run dirt through 500 water squirters so eventually you'll find these itty-bitty pieces of gold because gold prices are so high that it's valuable and they're doing this thing. I mean, we, we take the most precious things that all this effort and people are losing their houses and their families because they're trying to get way down to this pay dirt way under the ground with these giant machines and they're breaking through permafrost and the ground to try to find this because it's so valuable. And that's our picture of heaven is what it takes to get all the way down there. And so they come away and they're so excited. I was watching one of the recent episodes and they're so pumped because this jar this big is this full of gold. And in heaven, the streets are paved with it. You go through a whole season for this. And in heaven, that doesn't make up one-tenth of a brick in the street. And yes, they're made out of brick, because brick streets are way cooler than paved streets. So, that's the picture of what hope looks like. Not because it's actual gold, maybe it is, God can make it out of whatever he wants to make it out of. But the point is, we're trying to describe it by the most precious things that we know, and the way it's described are just the most beautiful and most expensive things in the world and the point of the scriptures to point us to Christ and the reproach he bears and all of that kind of stuff is that we might endure and be encouraged because of the hope. Why do I endure? Why do I suffer? Why do I not please myself? Because that day's coming. Not because tomorrow's coming. You don't have tomorrow promised, but you have that True, capital T, tomorrow, coming. And it is promised, it is guaranteed. The scriptures are there to encourage you, to endure, to get there. How do you get there? By being so transformed here by God, not by you, that you no longer live for yourself, but that you live for the pleasure of others, that you're always looking for their good. How many of you came here today thinking about someone else that you could serve? Someone else that you would see that's going to need a word of encouragement, that's going to need a scripture, that's going to need a hug, that's going to need care? Or did we come for ourselves to please ourselves? How many of you are going to leave today and you're going to go, oh, NBA All-Star game. Here we go. This is going to be great. Right? Or it's the, you know, like, some special, you know, thing that's going on in your life or your family or some trip you're going to take or some lunch you're going to have or some whatever it is.
The scriptures are there that we might have hope so that we would live for something in the future. Now we're going to get into where all of this is going. He gives a, a benediction, really, a prayer in verse 5. And by the way, this, this finishes quickly, this passage. <laughs> you guys know I'm a big liar. Um, no, it really, it really does. May the God of endurance and encouragement. You get that? The scriptures are there for what? Endurance, encouragement. That's an instruction that we receive for that hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus. He shows the example of how to live with others by not pleasing himself. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it should look like. Okay, he explains, he's teaching, and then he says, Now may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. That is what it means to live in harmony with one another, is that you give up your rights for others. It's my life for yours. Not my life for mine and your life for yours. It's my life for yours. The best way to live in a marriage is to be seeking to serve your spouse, not to be seeking to serve yourself. Marriages that break up are there because, essentially, at its core, all of us as sinners like to serve ourselves and not serve our spouse. And then we wonder why they don't do something for us, and they wonder why they, we don't do something for them. And then we get bitter and angry because the other one's not serving me well enough. Well, I would serve you better if you served me better. Well, I would serve you better if you served me better. I left the house yesterday to finish studying for this and, and, and finish up. Uh, I was working at Starbucks, and, and uh, I'm reading through this, and I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to start texting Molly and telling her how much I love her and how beautiful she is. And so I started sending stuff. I found an old picture of her on my phone, um, like when she was really young, like 39. And um, <laughs> she's 40. Uh, and, and so I had to find like a program in which I could doodle on the picture and I drew a big red heart and then I emailed it or texted it to her and it was like crooked and I couldn't figure out how to straighten it up. And so I just sent it knowing that she could turn her phone and it would be fine. Um, and I just thought, I just, I just, I, she doesn't expect me to do that. I just want to do that. I want to, I, I want to serve her. I want to tell her how valuable she is to me and how to me she's more beautiful now than when she was young and, you know, everything was fresh and, you know, none of the oldness of life and all the stuff that, you know, you give birth to four kids, okay? Um, if I have to elaborate on what it means that your body goes to the birth of four kids, okay, good. So, therefore, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's, isn't, that, isn't that great? I mean, it's not that that's a new statement, it's not that that doesn't it's not already what's implied before, but the, the word is welcome. Now, it's not like, well, hello, come in. I've fulfilled verse 7 of chapter 15. No, that's not, you know, it's like when the old honeymooners, where he says, okay, to play golf, what you have to do is go address the ball. What do you do? Hello, ball, right? Yeah, you guys, you guys get it? No, 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 that's not what it means. To welcome here means to receive, to look, to look at the weakest of the weak, of God's family and to bring them close and hold them tight to bring the, this is this is what it means therefore welcome one another as another important very short word as Christ has welcomed you did Christ say hello is that what he did for you what did Christ do for you died 
I've decided to welcome some people. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be raised up on a cross, and I'm going to suffer for hours and hours, not just on the cross, but spittings and beatings and crown of thorns and all that stuff beforehand. I'm going to spend three years teaching stuff that I'm going to have to keep running away from people because they're coming after me. And then I'm going to empower people to all go die for me. That's how Christ creates a welcoming people, by being the first fruits of death. Because through death, find life. Through Christ's death, we find life. Through the apostles' deaths, we find life. And now through your death. Remember, chapter 12? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what it means to live as a living dead person. Therefore, welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Okay, everybody, I, I hate it when people do this in churches, but I'm going to do it just because I'm that guy. Um, everybody look around, okay? Just, just brief eye contact. Just look around, see some people around you. I'm asking you to actually do it. Some of you are thinking, oh, you won't notice that I'm not doing it. You see all these people around here? Die for them. people you just saw, the people that you know are in the room but you don't want to look at for whatever reason, this says welcome them as Christ welcomed you. It's, it's, it's not funny, right? Have, have you ever looked at each other that way? Have you ever looked around this room and said, I'm supposed to die for this person. I'm supposed to not please myself and I mean, it's one thing to go, well, I'll, I'll just kind of, you know, temporarily abstain from eating that meat sacrifice to an eye. No, I mean, it's not, this is everything. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, meaning the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Well, how would that show God's truthfulness? in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The promises given, who's the, who one of the patriarchs? Who's the first one we mentioned? Abraham. And I already talked to you about Abraham and the promise that was made to Abraham, right? Promise made to Abraham that God is going to bless the whole world through you. And there's, there's other things we can describe, but let's just leave that part of it. Christ came and was born as a Jew, the circumcised people, to show God's truthfulness. In order that, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, it's confirming it. The promise was there, boom, confirmation. God's stamp upon his promise that shows that his promise is fulfilled is Jesus. It is Christ. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay? So Jesus comes, God's truthfulness is shown because it confirms the promise that God made. So God was truthful, he kept his promise. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, how does he keep his promise? The promise was for the world. So when the gospel goes to the Gentiles, the Gentiles believe God's promise to bless all the nations has come. He is shown truthful. When we point people to what, you know, is God real? And some of you are like, well, I read this article recently in which they found a fragment of the book of Mark that's from the first century. It helps to confirm that the New Testament scriptures that some people are dating later than the first century are actually happening in the first century. They are authentically from that particular time period. 
it, yeah, you're going to convince lots of people, right? I mean, that's not saying you shouldn't have that or shouldn't know that or shouldn't be whatever that. I'm saying the greatest way you confirm Christ is the same way Paul did in the synagogue is, guess what? God made a promise, and look at what happened. He fulfilled it. God made a promise. He fulfilled it. He showed he's truthful. He showed that he's real. He showed that he exists and that he loves. So Christ became a servant, giving up his rights for another, giving up his life for another. He is the one who does not do what pleases himself, but pleases others. He became as a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he gives four scriptures. Okay, here we go. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel is one of the historical books of the Old Testament. We categorize the Old Testament books in that uh, one of the categories is historical books. Now, the first five books of the Bible we call, they may know, we call the Pentateuch or the Law. And again, it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's from Deuteronomy 32, first five books of the Bible. So the first quote is from the historical book. Second quote is from the law. The third quote is from the Psalms, which is categorized by scholars as the writings. It's not giving you a story as much as it is giving you a type of writing, a, a poem, a song. And it says, and again, in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Historical, Second Samuel, Law, Deuteronomy, the Writings, Psalms. What's left? The Prophets. And again, Israel, Isaiah, sorry. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. This is David's father. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. That's from Isaiah 11. The four categories of the Old Testament, Paul quotes from all four. Why? Well, because the instruction of the endurance, the encouragement that comes from the scriptures, right? That's part of it. But then here, in order to show that God's truthfulness comes and that his promise is fulfilled, and specifically the Gentiles praising God's name, boom, 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 there it is. They are praising his name. And specifically here, how does it end? Verse 12, in him will the Gentiles hope. Hope. And then he goes back like verse 5 and he gives this sort of benedic benediction or prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The hopeful life is the kind of life in which you have joy and peace in believing, not in seeing. You understand? It's not in seeing, it's in believing. Joy and peace in believing. That you will have joy and peace in this life now while you're enduring painful things and giving up the pleasures that you can have in Christ. And sometimes you will have, still. Right? I mean, it's not that you never have anything of pleasure. It's not saying that. It's not saying become like a monk or, you know, a nun or, or whatever. We don't have Baptist nuns. Okay? Sorry. Um, but the point is, is that we're so focused on that future time. What's the saying? Somebody can be too heavenly minded to be 
any earthly good. You could be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. The, the truth is, if you're not heavenly minded, if you don't truly fix your hope there, you're no earthly good. The only thing that's good in this life is to live as if this life isn't the end. Which means you live by hope. You live by hope. And when you live by hope of that next life to come, you start doing things in this life in preparation for that life. And instead of saying, I'm going to try to extend my life for an extra year by, you know, doing whatever perfectly and, and taking whatever, you know, supplements and whatever. And I'm saying don't take supplements. I'm just saying we have all of this effort into extending our life as, as far as we can. And then there are some destructive people who are doing everything they can to destroy those lives as quickly as they can. And the point here is we live, and I'm, I'm sitting here preaching, and the brightest, the brightest place in the whole room for me is straight ahead because there's windows right there, and, and it's just very bright. So as I'm facing you guys, it's the brightest spot that's coming right at me, and that's a picture for me as I'm preaching. That's what I, a lot of times when I'm talking about hope, you'll see me kind of looking forward and going like this, and to me, I'm, I'm actually seeing it. I'm actually going, it's, it's that, it's that light out there, we're moving that way, and it's, it's, a, it's a skip over this life, but we don't skip over it, we go through it, and we go through it enduring, and encouraged by the scriptures, the scriptures don't encourage you by saying, I'm going to give you escape from the things that cause you problems, but endurance through them. And therefore, we can endure all things because of Christ. We can say, it's my life for yours. Not your life for mine. Not everybody else find a way to serve me. Not me trying to explain how important I am. Not me trying to figure out how to do as little as possible. You ever had a project you're working on and there's a bunch of people working on it and there's that one person? All you to do is watch like Celebrity Apprentice. All these spoiled people, right? You're in this room and, and then you got the ones who have a business background or in business and, and even though they're famous for other things and so they are, know how to work and there's other ones who are like, I might break a nail, and not just to pick on the ladies, but, you know, the rock stars who are used to giving their list of all the things they want in the green room before they go, and I want this many bottles of water at this exact temperature, and I want, I want the melon cut up into, you know, slices and not cubes, and what will it mean for you to walk out of this room and to live this way, to live with hope in that future day, what Christ has purchased for you? What will it mean for you to find a way to make sure as many people as possible have that same hope as you? Isn't that what it means? To not please ourselves, but to please our neighbor? To bear with the weak? Is that we're trying to do our best to make sure as many as possible come with us and we all aim at that hope and live our lives for that hope so that when we get there, we have the joy, the eternal joy of being with Christ and having lived our lives not to please ourselves but to please others because he's already pleased with us. Stand with me for closing prayer. God, I... Um, I long to live more this way and I have this great desire in my own life, in my own heart, this 
there's something unbelievably romantic about living a life of sacrifice, and yet the minute it starts getting painful, I want to run from it. And I know that that is not an experience that is only for me, but it's for others in this room. And so we as your people, we need such an injection of spiritual power and truth. We need such a connection to the scriptures that your spirit uses to help us endure and to encourage us. We need such a joy in the things that that you have called us to in Christ so that we can really spend our time leading people toward you and, and preaching and proclaiming the gospel to those around us. The, the only way this can ever happen is if your spirit comes and empowers us and strengthens us to do it. And so we pray not just and, and really against us just going and working hard to make this happen. We pray, God, that your spirit would fill us now and send us out, that we would not do this as some type of good deed to make you happy, but that we are so overjoyed in that you have joy in us in Christ that we now get to go and not please ourselves and that we'll find our pleasure in that, that we will find our joy in not pleasing ourselves, which is exactly what this passage says. And so, God, lead us now. Guide us as your people to live this way. We can only do it if you give us the strength. We pray that you would give it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Love you guys.